dig into Second Peter. Um, I'm going to read um, as we get started, and then we'll pray. I'm going to read just through from um, from the beginning through to um, probably I think verse 11 would be appropriate for context. Um, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with, uh, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to your word, I pray that you would bless our time, that you would illuminate your word by the same Holy Spirit who inspired it, that we might be transformed this day through the teaching of your word, that we might grow in the knowledge of you and of your Son, that your glory might, might shine in our hearts and in this place. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're very early on. If you're just joining us, we've only just started this book. You've not missed much. I can summarize where we've been so far. Peter is writing his second letter. It's to the same group of people, uh, Jewish believers, to whom he wrote the first letter. Um, he made clear in his opening that he, though he is an apostle, is but a servant as well. And therefore, the faith that he has and the faith that we have are on equal standing. Because the distinction in our faith is non-existent. We're all saved by, by grace. We all have the same faith. The distinction is between us and God. And so he has here this very rare occurrence of where Jesus is spoken of as God because it is referencing the realm from which he came. Jesus, the glorious God, comes down as our Savior. And we have that statement of his deity, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have faith, verse 2, we're going to have, we want to see that grow. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And we see here in verse 2, the initial reference to knowledge that's going to come up again and again, that knowledge, this relational knowledge where we come to know God in understanding and in relationship, that this knowledge is the way in which we as Christians grow. And Jesus here is referred to in uh, as our Lord, which, as I hope most of you regulars know by now, is typically a reference to the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. That Jesus being Lord is no less of a reference to his deity than Jesus being God. So Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord. Jesus is of the realm of the Elohim. He was there in eternity past. He came as our Savior and he is still fully God, Yahweh. And so there's two references to the deity of Christ there. And here's your third one in verse 3. His divine power. The power is his and it's his because he is divine, because he is God. 
Three references to the deity of Christ in three verses. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And that's where we left it off last time, with this glorious truth of the sufficiency of Scripture. The fact that God has, through his divine power, through Christ's divine power, has granted to us everything. And the, the text in the original is emphatic. The word all is at the beginning. It is all things have been given to us that pertain to spiritual life and godliness. Everything that we need to live the Christian life has already been given to us. We have to be completely clear on that. And there is, there is, there is still to this day, church after church around the land where people are still told that you are lacking something that you somehow need to go forward and receive something from God that you don't yet have, because until you receive what you don't have, you're somehow missing out. Scripture, again and again and again, speaks to the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of his word, the containing all that we need. We have been given everything that we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Everything. Now, you may not know how to use the tools that you've been given very well yet, but it's not that you don't have the tools, and that's the important distinction. So we spoke about the sufficiency of Scripture last time. It doesn't promise us being able to fix every problem, to sort everything out. The Bible is not here to, to fix every area of our life, but it's here to enable us to be godly in the midst of trials and difficulties. And so we have, through his divine power, not in our own strength, being granted everything that pertains to life and godliness. But note that it comes through the knowledge, second reference so far in the book to knowledge, through the knowledge of him. In other words, that, that, that this power that is manifesting in, in the whole of our lives, spiritual lives is coming through the knowledge of him, which we need to grow in. And it comes... Um, he called us, rather, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And so the calling of God upon our lives has a purpose. And that purpose is for us to glorify him and to reflect his excellence. And so we pick up <clears throat> this week in verse 4. Verse 4. And so it is his glory and excellence, everything being for his glory, not for our own, that we ended last time. And that's where we're picking up. And it, when it says here, by which, that is referring to his glory and his excellence. It is by his glory and excellence he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen, I want us to understand this connection. And by the way, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, this section here is very Pauline. It, 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 it kind of has echoes of Paul throughout it. The sort of logical progression of argument is very Paul-like. But what he's saying here, as he, and you're going to follow these links as we go through today, you've got his glory and excellence. He's called us to his glory and excellence. That's the purpose of our calling. To his glory and excellence. And by that glory and excellence, by it, he's granted us his precious and very great promises. Now, we're going to talk about those promises in a minute. But I want us to understand this. That the promises that God has given to us have been granted by his glory and excellence. Now, when you see this in its completion, we've been called to his glory, and his glory has granted us his promises, then we, we start to see what a bit player we are in this whole spectrum of life. We live in an era where everybody is the hero of the story. You, you, have, a, you have, most of you will have multiple social media accounts. And on your social media account, you are the hero. Or if you grew up on VeggieTales, you are that hero. You, you're, the, you're the one that is, is there and, uh, being seen. You, it, it's, the, it's the you show. There you are. And, and that's fine. 
Because there's a place for that. There's a place for you to, to be able to share stuff with your friends and family who want to, to see you, want to know what you're doing, and want to hear your opinions. And that's absolutely fine. I'm not knocking that at all. All I'm simply saying is that we live in an era where we are so drawn to this, this concept of it all being about us. And we spoke last week about how when you combine our own, narciss- um, our own narcissism with the interpretation of Scripture, and you get this kind of narcissus, whereby we're always reading ourselves into every scriptural story. <clears throat> and, and I think the idea is, and the understanding that we need to have is simply this, that yes, we are greatly valued by God. Yes, he, he's given us these astonishing promises. But why, why has God given us these promises that are so precious and are so great? Because he wants to glorify himself. And, and I think that when we understand this, this is sometimes the thing that just takes us from, from a kind of kindergarten Christianity to a more mature faith. This understanding, this recognition that even the blessings that God has given to us, he has done so to glorify himself, to show his wonder, his excellence, his majesty. He hasn't just said, oh, look at Anthony, isn't he a little sweetheart? Let's give him a bunch of promises because he's so nice. And honestly, sometimes the way people speak of the gospel, you would think that was the case. That that God's saying, oh, you're so sweet. Let me give you a whole bunch of gospel promises. No, 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 no. When God gives us his promises, when God says, I will do this for you, when God promises us things like redemption, the ultimate removal of sin and glorified bodies, when God promises that he will never leave us and forsake us, when God promises that every sin we've ever committed will be, will be a distant memory and separate as far as the east is from the west, and all of these glorious truths of scripture, he does it so that we wouldn't go, wow, we must be really neat people that God would do that for us. But rather that we would say, what an awesome God. You are not the king and queen on the chessboard. You are but a pawn. God is the majestic one. God is the one who must be glorified. And I have seen in my lifetime doctrine after doctrine rejected and cast aside. I've seen through my lifetime people compromising again and again and again. And it seems to me that almost universally the rejection of Christian doctrines over the course of my lifetime that I have witnessed has always been down to two factors. The, the acceptance from man and the comfort of ourselves. In other words, that we want to water down scripture so that we would be accepted by our fellow man and so that our lives would be that little bit more comfortable. Well, surely God doesn't mean for us to do this. That would be incredibly difficult for us. That would be astonishingly unpleasant. Oh my goodness, if God says I can't do this, then I'm going to be very lonely or I'm going to be very sad or I'm going to be very upset. And though we might not recognize it immediately, doing that, thinking that way, is an exposing of our own narcissism. This idea that, that God just wouldn't do anything that would be hurtful to us. I do wonder how people come to such conclusions. And of course, the answer is obvious. It can only happen in a vacuum, a vacuum of, of biblical illiteracy from people who simply don't read their Bibles have never read through lamentations and lament psalms where again and again the, 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 the authors are saying, you have done this to me, you have done that to me, you have done this. That people recognize the sovereignty of God and recognize that God's sovereignty allowed him to express his glory through hardships placed upon us. Does that mean that we just have to suck it up? No, there's a basis for us to cry out and say, God, come and rescue me. God, come and help me. God, change your course, change the circumstances. Of course we cry out to him because he's sovereign and he loves us. But let us not be so ignorant as to think that somehow God's business is making our lives happy and comfortable. 
God is in the business of glorifying himself. Does that mean that he's not bothered about us? No, 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 no. It means that when he glorifies himself, that is the best thing for us. That's the best thing for us. That God will be glorified in our lives. Trust me, when we get to to spend eternity with him, there will not be a moment that we say, man, I wish God hadn't put me through that. I wish my life had been that little bit more comfortable. The only thing we will wish is that we would have glorified him more. Our lives, to summarize, are for the glory of God. That is why we are here. We are here to glorify him. If we go through our Christian lives thinking that God is here for us, we are going to be constantly frustrated every single turn. Because every time trials come, every time our plans get thwarted, every time things don't go the way that we want, every time tragedy enters our lives, we will think that he has somehow betrayed us, that he has somehow broken his word, when in fact he hasn't, we just never understood it. And so, the promises that we do have, and boy are they good promises, they are precious and they are very great These promises that he has given to us, he has given to us by means of his own glory and his own excellence. Nothing that he has promised will do anything other than scream and declare to the heavenly realms the glory and the excellence of God. And we then see that so that, this is the reason, as he continues, these are these links I was talking about, they all connect together. He's granted us his precious and great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, the promises that God has given to us, the promises of redemption, the promises of salvation, the promises of all his blessings towards us, the great glories to come, the, the promises for now, all of these promises that God has given that we see throughout the scriptures and we'll see in this book as well, they have been given so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, that we would become more like Jesus than we currently are. That's what he wants for us. God does not want you to have a bigger bank account, for you to be more comfortable, for you to have less trials, for your life to be smoother. He wants you to be more like Jesus. Because that is how he is glorified. That's how he's glorified. When he takes sinners like us and he transforms us so that we become more like Christ partakers of that divine nature that if you're keeping count is reference number four to the deity of christ so far in verse four one perverse we may become partakers of that divine nature so that we are not that we ourselves are divine but that we can through our unity with Christ, because we are in him, that we can become practically more like him. And the, the, how this happens is then explained, as he says, having escaped from co- the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, now this is crucial that we understand this. This is all kind of linking up together all these concepts, all right? He's given us the promises of God. God has given us his promises so that we might become partakers of the divine nature of Christ, that we might be able to look more like him, walk more like him, that we would be transformed, become that, become more like him, right? He has done that having escaped. So this is something that's already happened. So we're talking about God having given us what we need so that we can live a holy life. And it's like there's two categories here in this text. There are the things that have already happened and the things that are ongoing. What has already happened is that everything that we need has been given to us. 
What is ongoing is that we are being transformed continually by the things that have been given to us into the divine nature, into the image of Christ. Okay? Now, this is where it's crucial. One of the things that we have been given is the escape, having escaped, the escape from the corruption that is in the world. At the moment, we're hearing a lot about people wanting to stop the corruption of the world. We as Christians have already escaped the corruption of the world. We've al- it's already happened. We've already escaped it. That is one of the things that God has given to us. We don't have to, to escape. We have escaped. Okay? So part of this becoming partakers of the divine nature is because God through what he's accomplished has already allowed us to escape from the corruption that is in the world now notice this why is the world corrupt why is there corruption in the world because of sinful desire it says it as clear as can be now I'm not I am not wading in to all the contemporary issues right now because whatever I say I'll tread on multiple toes but suffice to say this the solution to the corruption of the world is the removing of sin by the preaching of the gospel no man-made solution will deal with the world's corruption it won't you might be able to put a band-aid on here, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't. I'm simply saying you can't deal with the problem of corruption in this world without dealing with sin. Because the reason that we have corruption is because we have sin. And so if we want to see less corruption in this world, the one thing that we can do as Christians that other people cannot do is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to let people know that they are sinners and therefore the very nature of their sin means that they, whatever else they're doing, whatever contributions they're making, that they are contributing to the corruption of the world. They are adding to it because of their sin. And the solution to their sin is only found in one thing in one person it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ where there is redemption from sin where sin can be dealt with where the price for sin God's righteous wrath against sin can be appeased that price can be paid and aside from that there is no dealing with corruption Christ has offered the solution to sin, faith and trust in his namesake. That's it. That's it. And so, when we look at this, and it's an incredible statement, we have already escaped corruption. That's fantastic, you say. Brilliant. I'm so glad to hear that I have no contribution to the sin of the world anymore. Maybe not quite. Because there is still this becoming. But what's important to know is this, that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the text is saying something very clearly, that the issue of sinful desire, we have escaped from that. Now you might say, well, you don't know my heart right now, and I'm pretty sure that I haven't escaped from sinful desire. I'm still struggling and I'm still fighting. And I understand. Me too. But, but the reality is simply this. I think that we have a misunderstanding of what Jesus dealing with sin on the cross is about. Because in, in our Christian circles, we so often oversimplified the work of the cross. To put it another way, too often we simply see the problem of sin as being a, you're a sinner, so you can't go to heaven and be with God, so you need to trust in Jesus, and if you trust in Jesus, he'll forgive you for your sin, and now you can go to heaven and be with God. That's not the totality of the message of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. The reality is, is that we are dead in our sin apart from Christ. We're bound by our sin. Our sin controls our every thought, our every action. And that Christ 
dying for our sin, paying the price for our sin, becoming sin for our sakes, that we might become the righteousness of God. That him doing that is setting us free, redeeming us from sin. In, In other words, we were all slaves. And our masters were our sinful natures. Our sin said, go this way, and we went that way. Our sin said, go, go the other way, and we went the other way. We did what our sinful desires told us to do. But when Christ redeems us from sin, we are bought, and we're set free. We're, we're, the, the price is paid to take us away from that master, and we have a new master, God himself. We are slaves of Jesus Christ now. So, so human beings are always slaves. The, the question is, who's your master? Is your master your sin? Or is your master Jesus Christ? And, and so now we are set free from sin. So what does that mean? Does that mean simply that now that sin is no, no, we're free from sin, we can go to heaven? Well, that's an outworking of it. But what it means is this, and you've got to grasp this. Sin no longer has power over us. We get to say no. Now I know. We still struggle to say no. But that's what we're seeing in this text, is it not? That there is the what we've already received and what is still ongoing. God has given us everything. He set us free. We are now people who have been, have escaped from the corruption that comes through sinful desires. We're now free from that. But we are still in the process of becoming partakers of a divine nature. So in Christ, we're set free from sin. And as we grow in knowledge, and as we grow in understanding, what we're doing is we're learning to live in a way that is operating out of our new nature, which unbelievers do not have, and no longer living in the old nature, which we still have, but we're no longer bound to. Does that make sense? So... We now as believers have two natures. We have the divine nature. We have Christ in us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we can live a life that is free of sin. But we are still habitually living the old way, in the old nature. And so this is what Peter is talking about here. He is talking in verses 3 and 4 about God having given us everything that we need to live godly lives... So that we can then, through the promises of God, start to live a different way. Because he's already rescued us. So that we can live the way that we should live. The work has been done by him. The work is ongoing in our lives now. Now all of that then leads us up. And I tell you, we spent a lot of time on these verses and they are glorious verses, which is why we have. But really it's all building up to verse 5. This is, verse 5 is really his main point that we've been building up to. But that's all of our foundation for that. Um, he says this, for this very reason. Okay, so all of this that we've seen, for this reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then we'll go through this list. Okay. Make every effort. Okay. Who does the work? Who does the work of sanctifying us? Who does the work of making us holy? Who transforms us? God does it. God does it. Our salvation, not just us being justified and declared righteous, but us being sanctified, us being transformed, us becoming partakers of a divine nature. This is the work of God, right? He does it. All glory to him. Therefore, make every effort. Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty with human responsibility? And he said... You don't need to reconcile friends. I take his point. We have so much infighting in Christian circles where people are so determined to sit in one camp or the other. Either we're going to focus completely on on divine sovereignty or we're going to focus completely on human responsibility. I I don't see 
that we need to do one or the other because we see the two combined in just one text here before us. That God is doing his work in our hearts and so we are thankful that he's doing this work and so we make every effort. And as we make effort, it's him doing the work because it's his divine nature, it is his divine power and he receives all the glory but we need to make every effort. People struggle with this stuff. I mean, if you, if you were to come to the New Testament having kind of been raised in the Old Testament, this would not be a struggle to you. Again and again and again, Israel would sin and commit idolatry, spiritual adultery, and God would say, I'm going to judge you here. Here's my servants, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. My servants will come in and bring judgment on you for your idolatry. And so these Gentile nations would come and Israel would be under judgment because of their sin. And then God would turn to the Gentile nations and say, look what you've done to my servant Israel. Now I'm going to judge you for what you've done. You see, throughout the Bible, there is this constant harmony between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That God says, I'm going to make this happen, and that people are responsible for what happens. And honestly, if you, if you want to be one of those people who spends your entire life wrestling with this and choosing one side or the other and arguing with the other side, fine, go ahead, have at it. But I, I've, got, I've got better things to do in my time. When I see divine sovereignty in the scripture, I'm going to preach it hard. God is sovereign. He is in control of all things and nothing happens without him saying so. And then when I see human responsibility, I'm going to say, you need to do this or there will be consequences and you are responsible for them. I'm going to preach it equally hard because that's what scripture teaches. And so, and more so, and let me just before we move on, more so, it's not just that we say, well, God is doing his work in us and we're doing it as well, and we've got to somehow reconcile that. That isn't what he's saying here. He's saying, God's doing his work in you, therefore, make every effort. Paul, said, Paul says to the Philippians, because it's God who's doing the work in you, he says, make, therefore, make every effort. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's because God is doing the work. It's because it's God's work that we want to be making an effort. I know that can mess with your brain. Go ahead, lie down over lunch, just think it through. But I don't think that there will ever be an answer that will completely satisfy us. I understood many, many, many years ago that me trying to understand God is sort of like when I'm trying to have a conversation with my dog. He gets it, at least he does when I got a treat in my hand. And he gets lie down, but if I start to talk to him about the finer points of biblical theology, I lose him. I think. Maybe. Who knows? I can live, I can dream. But anyway. And I feel that God speaking to us is a little bit like that. In that he's given us his word, and, and there, is, there is more here than in a hundred lifetimes we could ever fully dig into and, and, and to understand in all of its depth. And yet at the same time, even if we did understand every aspect of everything within this, this book, we would only have scraped the surface of the mind of God. And so we embrace his word even when we don't fully understand it. So for this reason... Because we have escaped from sin, because God is glorifying himself through us, because God has given us his spirit, and so we have his divine power and the divine nature, we are becoming partakers of. Therefore, for this reason, we are going to make every effort to supplement our faith. Now, there is a logical progression to this series of words. That we have faith. The faith has already been mentioned. We started off with that at the beginning. We have a faith of equal standing with the apostles. We have faith in Christ and when we first believe we have faith and there we are brand new baby Christians and what do we need to do with this faith we need to add to it we need to supplement it and firstly we're going to add to uh, our faith virtue now virtue is a word that broadly speaking we mean moral excellence in other words 
you know, I think we have a, a, a hopefully a basic enough understanding of, of our faith that, that when we are saved and when we believe that our faith is not just simply believing intellectual assent, but rather that there's a transformation. That there were things that we would do that we no longer do, and there were things that we didn't do that we now do. That there is a degree of moral behavior that should be accompanying our faith. This is part of the journey of spiritual maturity. Now, by the way, this isn't like a, a how many step program. This isn't a case of, okay, I'm, I'm still on faith. Where are you at? Well, I'm on virtue. Oh, wow, you've been going for a while, you know. It, it doesn't work quite like that. But nonetheless, there is, a, there, is a, there is a logical progression here to some degree. I hope we'll see as we go through. But initially, there is faith, and then there is a, a, a moral rightness to our lives that comes uh, that is added, that we need to make an effort to add alongside the faith that we have. And then virtue with knowledge. This word knowledge just keeps on coming up. In, in verses um, 2, is it, and 3, uh, it is literally full knowledge. Here it, it, it's just the word knowledge. With God there is a full knowledge, with us there is, there is this, this uh, gradual growth in understanding that is just light years from the knowledge of God, the knowledge that he has, the understanding he has. And so, so we, we, we grow in knowledge. And, and I tell you, this book has already made it so clear. You don't get to mature in your faith apart from knowledge. You, you simply don't. If you are a Christian who is never in your Bible, if you, uh, you know, kind of not, I'm preaching to the choir here really because you're here, but if you're someone who attends the church where you get, you know, 15-minute sermonettes where I used to go to that kind of church, you know, you have a single verse, boom, now we're going to bounce off it like a diver off a springboard and off we go and say whatever it is we wanted to say that the, the verse is going to let us do rather than actually exegeting, explaining the text. You know, if that's what people have, you know, sermonettes make Christianettes. There's certainly a truth to that, that little mantra. We, we need to know God. When Moses saw the glory of God, he came down from Sinai and he was still shining. He was radiating. And that concept is true throughout scripture. That when we look upon God and who he is, we become more like him. I am not one of those preachers who, who will go through a passage and say, okay, here's what the passage says. Now, how am I going to apply this to people's lives? You know, somebody's got to have a little takeaway to put in their back pocket, as it were, as they go. Listen, if I've let you see Jesus Christ more clearly than you did before, my job is done. No application necessary. Just a bit of sunbathing with an O. That we see, we sit in the glory of Jesus Christ and we go, oh, my Lord. And we come up just a, a little bit more radiant than when we left. A little bit more transformed. A little bit more changed. Because you see, the danger is this. The danger is, is that we keep being applicational and say, this is how you change this. This is how you do that. You should be more like this. You should be less like that. You should do this more often. And we have all of these, these, these requirements and these, these legal you know, implications upon people. And what happens is that people get burdened by those things. And there's no actual transformation that makes them live those things. I don't need someone to tell me more rules. I need God to work on my stubborn, proud heart so I start to live out the rules I already know. I'm sure it's the same for you. And so we need, with our faith, to have this moral excellence. We need to have virtues. We need to live correctly. But we need to have the knowledge of God that's going to press us on to greater maturity because we don't just want to be tagging on good behavior. This is, you know, you have the Mormon missionaries come to your door wearing their nice suits and ties and looking all smart and clean on the outside and they'll talk to you about moral excellence and how important it is. And Jesus Jesus' words to the Pharisees always ring in my ears at that point, where he talks about them being whitewashed tombs. Where they look glorious and white and shiny on the outside, and inside there's just death. And sure, if we have faith, that's the beginning of this sequence, then we're not going to be dead, are we, inside? 
But nonetheless, we can fall into the same trap that we kind of try and present this, this sort of outward moral cleanliness when we don't really know God and we haven't really even partly began our, our voyage of transformation. We've barely become partakers of a divine nature yet. And so I find it interesting how early on the list virtue is and how knowledge comes next afterwards because we need to come to know God better. I think there's certain things that when a person becomes a Christian, boom, immediately they know, do you know what, I used to do this and that's probably wrong. If you're a career criminal and you, you, you are convicted of your sin and you bow the knee and you, you, you come before Jesus and, and you, you believe and trust in him for your salvation and, and you, you want to live your life for him, no one has to say, don't go and break into the bank like you were planning on doing tomorrow afternoon. Nobody has to say that. There's a virtue that comes immediately. But the knowledge of God is so much more. We have to grow in that knowledge. That is something that is ongoing. And then with knowledge, we need to add to that self-control. And that's kind of what I was referencing. I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. But, you know, there is this point where with knowledge, we can say, well, I know this is wrong, but yet we keep doing it. That there is self-control, and self-control follows knowledge. Because, as I've said, as we gaze on God, as we come to know him better, as we see his glory more, we are transformed. We are transformed just by looking at him, just by spending time with him, just by coming to know him better. I mean, I, guys, I've done studies in the past where I've spent hours and hours talking about technical details of this and that, and I come away from it all, and I walk out, and I'm just like, man, God's amazing, and he's great. And no one has said to me, you know, in the study I've been teaching, I haven't, I haven't said, don't sin. I haven't said, stop doing this. I haven't said, do more of that. But I want to do all of those things. I want to be more godly. I want to live for Christ more. I, I've got a bounce in my step. Why? Because I've just spent time looking at God. And so knowledge will then give us the foundation to move on to be self-controlled people. To be able to say, now I understand God a little bit better. I'm going to stop doing this and start doing this and have this self-control in our lives. And we can start to see real change. And then once we have self-control in our lives, we have steadfastness. Now steadfastness is uh, patience. Endurance. It's more than just patience. It's not, it's not patience in the sense of, you know, you know, well, I'm waiting for the bus and, you know, it's taken a while and I'm going to get grumpy or, you know, there's, there's two cars in front of me that are driving just that little bit too slowly and I'm going to get irritated. It's not that kind of patience. It's more this steadfastness. It's this, it's this just sticking with it. And, and when, it's one thing to have self-control where you say, do you know what, I'm not going to do this sin or I am going to do this, this, this habit pattern, I'm going to live this way. It's quite another thing when all of the world and all of your sinful nature and all that the enemy has is flung against you, when trials are coming and your life's falling apart and everything that you were has gone and everything you hold dear has been wrested from you and you are a broken sobbing wreck like Job sitting in the dump scraping his arms and you say I still believe God is still sovereign and he's still good that's steadfastness and you can see the progression that comes here it's all well and good to say, well, I'm going to be a bit more virtuous, but we've got to get to know God better so we can start to see transformation in our lives of self-control so that when stuff really goes down, we are found to be faithful. You think the kind of men and women that Paul had around him in ministering the gospel throughout of his life, and there he is at the end of his life locked up in that cell, writing to Timothy, and he says, they've all deserted me. No steadfastness. I don't think you really know 
what kind of faith you have until you lose almost everything you hold dear. And that's why we go from steadfastness to godliness. And steadfastness with godliness. We're going to add on, supplement to that steadfastness, godliness. That's how godliness comes. You notice the distinction between godliness and virtue? That virtue is something that you can just slap on a bit of virtue on top of faith. But godliness requires knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. And then we start to see godliness in people's lives. When you look in the scripture and it talks about the sort of people who are qualified to become deacons, one of the things that it says is let this person first be tested. Because until a person goes through terrible trials, you don't know if they're godly. You don't know if you're godly. Man, I used to think I was godly. (laughs) And then my world went to pieces. And God revealed and pulled back the curtain. That's when we get to see. It's when we get to see when the things that we love are taken away, the things that we want don't happen, when, when tragedies that we can't even contemplate are thrust upon us. That's when we see. And if we're steadfast through that, then we have an opportunity to be able to add some godliness, some genuine godliness to our life, where we become more Christ-like. And then godliness is followed by brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. It's a a word here that simply speaks, I think, of, of love and compassion and empathy for other people. It doesn't automatically happen when you are forced to go through trials that you become steadfast. And by the way, the word trials I know isn't here, but with Peter's talking to the same people he wrote first Peter to. So we know that's part of the thinking here, and we know that that's what they have and have been going through. And steadfastness doesn't automatically come from trials. Some of the most bitter people who have rejected Jesus most firmly, some people who still cling on to a, to a slither of faith, but have pretty much, much rejected the teaching of his word, are people who have gotten to that place through trials. Trials make you or break you. You either end up just bitter and angry with God, or you just say, I'm go- you're still sovereign, you're still good. I still trust you. Your word is still true. And you just, you learn steadfastness. And that then leads you to this godliness. And I think that when we come out through these trials, being steadfast and godly, when we go through this process of maturity, there comes out the other side an empathy and a compassion and an affection and a care of souls that cannot be formed in any other way. I know that, you know, you get young kids who, you know, from a very young age, they care about the the, the little wounded bird in the yard or whatever, you know. And I understand that that compassion and empathy are are natural, more natural to some people and, and can be seen very, very early. But what he's speaking of here is a deep hearted, empathetic connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ that you have to go through this process to get to. It's something altogether richer and deeper than the empathy that the world offers and speaks of. But even that's not the end. Because ultimately, it needs to lead to love. Because you can really care for someone and leave them in their suffering. Ultimately, We have to love. And this is the journey of faith, that faith goes to love. And again, this isn't like a a whatever step process that we go through as Christians year by year. I'm just saying that broadly speaking, there is a logical progression to this and that we are constantly adding these things. We are constantly making efforts. We are constantly trying to, to grow. We are constantly trying to mature, being aware that every step forward that we take, we do so because of His 
divine power. Him placing the spirit of God within us, having separated us from the power of sin so that we no longer have to continue to walk as we did and we can see this kind of transformation in our lives as we ever more become partakers of his divine nature. This, my friends, is what the Christian life should look like. Let's pray that it might be so in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this, this text before us and these, these glorious truths. Father, may we make every effort to add, to supplement to our faith these things. That we ultimately might be true partakers of a divine nature. Lord, you set us free from sin. May we no longer walk in it. You've given us your power through the indwelling Holy Spirit that we might live lives that are different from the lives that we used to live. Lives that cannot be lived by other people. And we see a world, Lord, that is so corrupt and so broken. May we at this time especially seek to be examples of transformed lives. And may we seek opportunities to share your gospel to this broken, hurting, and lonely world. Mankind is desperate for solutions, and we have the solution. This week, Lord, each one of us, give us an opportunity to speak of Christ. Whether it's in a store, with friends at work, socializing, wherever we might be. Our options maybe are more limited than in previous times, but your power is not. Give us opportunities. Open the door for us to speak of Christ and to speak of hope and salvation from sin. And may we walk in that, Lord. And may we do so for your glory, that people might see you and glorify your holy name. Amen.